could I allow this to happen? It's all my fault. How can I live with myself now? I let them down when they needed me the most. This is going to kill me. You know, when we look at our life, if we, if we just look back into the past, I think all of us have moments of regrets. Moments that we wish we could, could go back in, into the past and rewrite history to redo some things or to choose differently. And this morning, I actually want you to go back into your past, to look back into your life, and, and I really want to ask you a question. What's your biggest regret? What is your biggest regret in life? If there was one thing you could go back, one decision that maybe you wish you didn't make or one decision that you wish you made, what would it be? What is that regret, that act, that haunts you, keeps you up at night? You walk through life carrying it. You see, maybe for some of you, it was an affair where you chose to cheat on your spouse. Maybe for some, it was an abortion, where you wish you could get that decision back, a divorce, a lie. Maybe a drug that you started that led to an addiction. For some of us, it wasn't even a, a choice or an act that we did. It was, it was a moment where we wish we acted when we didn't. You see, I think we all have moments in our life that we regret. Moments that we wish we could just do over, pretend like they're, they don't exist, but for a lot of us, we carry them around. And when we go back to our past and we engage with those moments, it causes us to in, 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 encounter this last silent killer, the silent killer of shame. The silent killer of shame. If you haven't been with us over these last four weeks, we've been walking through this series titled Silent Killers. And what we're talking about is things that we keep concealed, things that we keep on the inside of our heart and our minds and our souls that are really destroying us. They're rotting us from the inside out. We've talked about worry. We've talked about depression. We've talked about expectations. And, and today we land the plane. We end this series with the silent killer called shame. And if you have your Bibles, you can jump to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide one for you. It's going to be on page 816. You can also follow along in our app. You can check out the screens or take notes in your program. And as you're making your way to Matthew chapter 5, I just want to say it's great to have every single one of you here. We're honored to have you here this morning. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses, you're engaged with us online right now at your home, or you're going to watch this later as a video, man, thank you for being here. We're thrilled to have you here this morning. And we're 
Landing the plane in this series, the series that I hope has been beneficial for you, the series that has caused some dialogue in your community groups and in your families, and we're talking about shame this morning, the silent, deadly killer of shame, and we've all interacted with shame. I mean, we've all probably felt the sting, the burden that shame brings, and shame defined as just this painful feeling of humiliation. This painful feeling of humiliation based on your past regrets, past decisions, or based on what someone did to you. And we probably have all felt it at one point or another in our lives. But here's what shame does. The more we encounter shame, the the more we jump into shame and feel and carry that burden, here's what happens is shame gives the enemy an opportunity to tell us a lie. When we deal with shame and we encounter shame and engage with it, it opens a window in our life for the enemy to swoop in and whisper lies into our head. Lies that often over the course of carrying our shame based on regrets, lies that we believe, lies that we take with us. And this morning, I kind of want to tell you where I'm going. I'm going to talk about two types of shame that we encounter. Two different types, they're almost the opposite, and it starts with the shame of the innocent. The shame of the innocent. This is shame that you carry and you did nothing wrong. You're innocent. Shame that you carry the burden even though you didn't do anything wrong. You're not guilty, you're innocent, but yet for some reason you still carry the burden of shame. And we have a A good example of this in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to set the scene for you, what's taking place in this passage. Jesus is, he's healing people. He's in the middle of his ministry. He's healing people. And people are starting to notice him. Crowds are starting to follow him. And there's this man named Jairus. Jairus in the Bible, his daughter is dying. She's getting ready to die. And he hears of Jesus. He goes to Jesus. And he says, I want you to come with me and heal my daughter. And what's interesting is as the story takes place, we actually pick up another story in Scripture, another character, the one we're going to talk about today. Mark chapter 5 starts in verse 24. It says, so Jesus went with him. This is Jairus. And a large crowd followed and pressed around. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And so in this story, Jesus is following this man named Jairus to his dying daughter, and there's this crowd that begins to build, this large crowd following Jesus because they want to see Jesus heal another person. He's miraculous. He's doing things that are extraordinary. And so they're following Jesus, and we pick up the second character. It's a woman. She's not given a name, but she's given a condition. Over the course of the last 12 years of her life, she's been bleeding. And ladies, you can relate to this woman because this is a 12-year-long period. And you can imagine the shame that she might feel just carrying this around. She's went to doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist. She's spent all her money. She's invested in getting healing, and it's only getting worse. And can you imagine carrying this around with you? Her condition causes her to feel shame, and it's even worse in this culture. Because you have to understand the culture of the Bible. In this time frame, when, we were deal- when they were dealing with medical conditions, if they didn't know a lot about the condition, the biggest thing they were afraid of is, is it contagious? Can it spread? 
And so someone in this day and age, when, when doctors didn't know what was going on, they couldn't heal it, what they would do with that person is they would announce them to be unclean. And what that meant was anybody who was announced to be unclean was ostracized out of the town. They were removed, they were segregated, and they were in this little clique, this community, and anytime they went into a public forum, the town, when there was people around, they would have to announce to everybody, I'm unclean. Unclean. So can you imagine this lady, every time she went to get groceries, every time she went to town, she would have to announce to the crowd, Hey, I'm that girl. I'm that girl who's been bleeding for 12 years. Get away from me because you don't want what I have. I mean, can you imagine the shame this woman is living with every single day, carrying it? And some of us, we can relate. We can relate to this type of shame, the shame of the innocent, because we carry shame almost every single day, and we did nothing wrong. Some of you here this morning, you were abused by someone maybe you loved. They took advantage of you, and you carry that shame. Some of you, you're, you're dealing with the handicapped. It wasn't anything you did wrong, but you have a handicapped, and you feel shame because of that. Maybe some of you, you lost a job, and it wasn't that you were a bad employee. The business just went under, and you carry that shame of not being able to provide for your family, and you did nothing wrong. The shame of the innocent, and, and here's what happens. Here's what happens when we deal with this type of shame, the shame of the innocent. The enemy whispers in our ear this lie, this is my fault. This is my fault. I mean, this, this woman probably dealt with this a lot. She probably at some point in her life, she's been bleeding for 12 years. She probably looked up to God or someone and said, what did I do to deserve this? And the enemy probably whispered in her ear, you, you do deserve this. I mean, you don't think we deal with this type of shame, but in our culture, this is a reality. I mean, and listen to some of these stats. This is modern day, the culture we live in today. People who are carrying this type of shame. Did you know that one out of every six boy and one out of every four girls are sexually assaulted, abused? I mean, that's our culture today. One out of every six little boy and one out of every four little girls has to walk around with shame because someone couldn't say no. And they carry it with them. And the enemy tells them, you know what he tells them? Hey, you deserve that. This is your fault. One of, out of every six women are sexually assaulted in our culture. And they walk around with this shame thinking, I did something to deserve this. It's the shame of the innocent, but there's a second kind of shame. The shame of the guilty. The shame of the guilty. This is kind of the opposite. This is the opposite. It's when you've done something wrong, you disobeyed God, and you feel shame because of it. You acted, and those regrets cause you to feel shame. And at the end of the day, probably all of us has encountered this type of shame because the Bible makes it clear that we are all guilty, that we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God. And so we've probably all interacted with this type of shame. But in John chapter 4, John chapter 4, we pick up a story. It's on page 863, if you want to turn there in the Northridge Bible. John chapter 4, it starts in verse 15, where Jesus is on this journey to Samaria. And he meets this woman at a well, and this woman is here to draw water. And Jesus begins to have a conversation with her. 
He really begins to introduce her to the gospel by, in, by, by talking about living water. And we pick up the conversation in verse 15. It says this, Then the woman said to him, Sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you are with right now is not your husband. What you have said is just quite true. Now Jesus interacts with another woman. This woman is at a well, and he begins to tell her about living water, that she'd never thirst again. And she wasn't understanding what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus asked her, go get your husband. And this was a setup for this woman's life. Jesus is about ready to call out her condition. And he looks at her and he says, hey, go get your, your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, man, you're right. You've had five. And you're actually on your way to your sixth. And what Jesus does is he calls out this woman's condition, condition that she's been searching for value and meaning in all the wrong places. And I bet you when Jesus said those words to her, she felt shame. Shame based off of her choices. She couldn't avoid what he said. I'm sure she wondered, how in the world does he know this about me? But she felt shame because she was guilty. There was nothing she could say to Jesus, oh, no, those weren't my husbands. No, they were. There was nothing she could say to get around it. She was guilty, and based off of her guilt, it led her to feel shame. In fact, later on in the passage, she tries to avoid the conversation altogether because often when we feel shame, we don't want to talk about the things we feel shame of. And instead of giving you illustration after illustration of what this looks like in our lives, I figured I'd... Let Molly tell you what this looks like. Check out her story. Well, it started with uh, me being convinced that I knew what would make me happy. It didn't start out crazy. It just started out with small steps like um, going to a party and having some alcohol and then um, trying marijuana and going to more parties and or throwing parties, being the host of a party and trying more drugs, uh, experimenting with different types of drugs, um, started taking pills that eventually led to heavy drug abuse, theft, um, physical abuse, uh, I had no place to live. I think I always felt like I had control, thinking that lifestyle wasn't bad, that it was just what people, lots of people did it. Lots of people lived that way and they were fine. I always tried uh, to convince myself that I'd be fine or that I was fine, that, every, that I had control, that it was normal, um, but it was a constant battle in my mind. Morally, I knew it was right, but I justified every decision. And eventually, uh, I was just apathetic. I just didn't care. I didn't really care to battle with my, in my mind anymore. I didn't care what other people thought. I, um, apathy just kind of won that saying, um, you are who you hang out with, but I don't think that really like hit me like I was like them. I, I think it was just kind of like, I'm not as bad as them, you know? Uh, and th there were definitely people around me that were worse, you know, at, the, at that time, but I got there, you know, eventually I was them. I definitely had moments where I was ashamed. I was coming home from Bible school, so I went to one year of Bible school. While I was there, I got kicked out from Bible school, so if that says anything about my time there, but I had heard so much truth about, you know, and all those people that I had met that I faked, you know, my life to, that I, you know, loved God or that I had a relationship with God. I was ashamed 
with certain people for sure. People that I knew um, didn't approve of my lifestyle. I was just destroying good relationships. I was, I was destroying the relationships with the people that cared about me for the people that probably didn't really care about me, but were doing the same things as me. And I tried to keep it as secret as I could for a long time. I didn't want people to know that I was doing anything that I was doing because, you know, I had gone to church. I knew that these things were wrong, but I'm not really doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. You know, that's what I would, I remember thinking that all the time, like I'm not hurting anybody. Meanwhile, I was hurting everybody, including myself. These habits became my lifestyle. I think that's why it, what, Got, it was so destructive so fast because little habits that I picked up, all of a sudden, this was my lifestyle. This was how I lived. I destroyed every good relationship um, in my life because of the choices that I was making. But I didn't see that. I was blinded by my selfishness and my desperation to find fulfillment in what was destroying me. the lie that the enemy whispers in our head, this is not who I am. I mean, he convinces us. He convinces us when we're guilty that it's not that big of a deal. It's, it, you, just, you just become numb to the lifestyle you're living, and you don't recognize that your choices are creating something that you probably don't want. And Molly's a great example of that. The, the shame that you feel when you're guilty, and the enemy convinces you, hey, it's not that big of a deal. And what's, what's amazing to me What's absolutely amazing to me when shame, when we interact with shame, whether it's shame of the innocent or shame of the guilty, how good the enemy is at lying to us. Because he can convince somebody who is completely innocent that they're guilty. And he can take someone who is completely guilty and convince them that they're innocent. Isn't that amazing that, that the, the enemy is so good at whispering lies into our heads. When we encounter shame, it opens this window and he lies to us and he convinces the people who did the wrong that they weren't wrong and the people who did nothing wrong that they were the ones responsible. He's so good at it. But what happens when we feel shame? What do we do? You see, our natural response to shame is to hide. We hide from it, we avoid it, we ignore it, we pretend like it's not there. We don't wanna deal with it. So we don't talk about it, we just conceal it, we hold it on the inside, and our natural response to shame is to hide. And we see this at the very beginning. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, they were told, hey, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? They eat of it, and the moment they, they took a bite of that fruit, guess what they did? They felt shame, they were guilty, and they ran, and they hid. They hid from God because they felt shame. And it's the same thing we do. It's the same thing my dog does. I did, I did say my dog, yeah. I have this cute dog. Her name's Bella. And it's interesting. You know, every once in a while, our, our family will go out to eat or we leave the house, and we leave Bella to kind of have free reign of the house. I've always wanted to put a camera in my house and see what, what she does. I'm, I'm kind of curious. But every once in a while, she'll, she'll leave a trail of, of what she's been up to. And so I think, you know, she gets hungry. She's got a dish out, but she wants a treat. And so she thinks apparently that treats are found in the guest bathroom because there's this little garbage pail that she loves to stick her head in and pull some things out. And so, you know, we'll come back and I'll find this little trail that Bella has left for me. And man, all I have to do when I get home and I see that dish, Bella's kind of waiting and watching. And all I have to do is raise my voice just a little bit and say, Bella. Her ears perk up, she looks me right in the eyes. 
You know what she does? She hightails it for the master bedroom and she climbs under our bed because she knows daddy can't get me here. Because <laughs> honestly, she knows she's guilty and she feels that shame. And it's a funny illustration, but we do the same thing with God. When we feel shame based on poor choices or someone did something to us, the very thing we do is we hide from God. We run from him. We, we try to cover ourselves up because of the way shame makes us feel. I mean, don't, if you don't believe me, take, take it from an expert. This is a woman who, who has studied shame for the last 10 years, and this is what she says causes shame to grow. This is Brene Brown. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. The very thing that causes our shame to grow is our natural response to shame. We hide from it. We run from it. And here's the result of that. Hiding from it keeps us from the truth. Hiding from our shame keeps us from the very thing that will actually set us free from shame. The enemy, he leads us to a place where we believe lie after lie and we hide from our shame because we don't want to deal with it anymore and it just pushes us farther and farther away from the thing that will set us free from our shame, the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, because the Bible says truth, the truth of his word will set us free. And so we hide from our shame. So the question is this morning is how do we overcome this silent killer? How do we win this battle? When we feel shame, when we carry shame throughout our lives, how in the world do we overcome it? And it looks different based on the shame that you're feeling. You know, if you're here this morning and you're dealing with the shame of the innocent, you've done nothing wrong, but you still carry shame. Someone has betrayed you. Someone has hurt you, taken advantage of you, abused you, and you carry the shame. How do I overcome it? Well, I think it starts by speaking up. We have to speak up. I mean, ultimately, that's what this series is all about, is it's breaking the silence because the silence is causing this thing to be deadly in my life. And we have to speak up. We can't just conceal the shame that we're dealing with or the circumstances that happen to us. We cannot conceal them because concealing them will cause more damage. we got to speak up. And what's been interesting in our culture this last year, it's been happening. I mean, there's this whole movement happening called hashtag me too, where women have had enough of how men have abused their power and position to take advantage of women. And they've come clean and they said, hey, I can't deal with this shame anymore. I've got to tell somebody what's going on. Because in our culture, men have abused their power and their position to use it and to get what they want from women. And women now are stepping up and speaking up and saying, hey, this can't be. This is not right. And so I think that's true for all of us. It's the shame we carry when we didn't do anything wrong. We can't let this sit in our hearts, but we have to speak up. And let me be clear what I mean by that. I don't mean go find the nearest news station and tell them your story. I don't mean go on social media and post all the baggage you've been carrying. What I mean by speaking up is I mean find a trusted friend. Find a, a pastor, a counselor, a community group leader. Find someone who you trust, who you have a good relationship with, and begin to share your story. Tell them what's going on because there's healing and not it not being silent anymore. Because we have to get to the place where we understand this truth. What you conceal won't heal. What you keep concealed in your life won't 
heal. And, and this woman who was bleeding for 12 years of her life, she realized this and she said she got to the point in her life where she wasn't going to conceal it anymore. Mark chapter 5, verse 27, it says this, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Interesting that Jesus, the way this woman was healed, was probably the thing she was the most afraid of, a crowd, a crowd. She didn't, she, Jesus made her no longer conceal her issue, and she had to navigate through a crowd, a crowd who probably knew who she was to overcome her shame. She had to, I'm, I'm not concealing it anymore. This is who I am. This is what, I, what is in my life, and if I just get to Jesus but she had to work through the crowd. She had to make a decision that I can't keep this hidden, I can't keep this silent anymore because what you conceal won't heal. But what about the shame of the guilty? Maybe you're here today and you're dealing with shame based off past regrets or poor choices. How do I overcome that? And I think our first step is to, to squash your pride, to squash your pride. Man, pride is one of those things that lies to you. It tells you that, hey, what you're doing is not that big of a deal. It, it lies to you like, hey, this isn't who you are. This isn't that big of a deal. You're not hurting anybody. Pride is, is selfishness. It's, it's the thinking that oh, only my decisions affect me. And our pride continues to lie to us. The enemy builds up our pride, and he just allows that to lie to us. And this is what the Bible says about pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it says, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. I think for some of us, we just got to drop our pride. We got to squash it. We got to squeeze it out of our lives because pride is the root of all sin. It's the root of all sin. And sometimes God does this for us. Sometimes we don't even ask for it. God just intervenes on our behalf where he removes all our pride by allowing us to hit rock bottom. Allowing, he removes blessings from our lives and he removes things that we love in order to, for us to realize that our pride has gotten in the way and we hit rock bottom where we have no pride left. And we have to squash our pride. But secondly, we have to admit our sin. We have to admit your sin and my sin and embrace God's forgiveness. And I hope this point gives you hope this morning. Because... At some point, we have to look up to God and say, hey, my past is haunting me, God. My past regrets. And you got to give them to God. you got to surrender them to God and say, God, I, I am a sinner. I messed up. I, I did something terrible here. And what I love about God, this is the greatest thing about God. Not the greatest thing, but one of the greatest things. Is maybe you're here today and, and you're dealing with some, some baggage in your past. And you're dealing with some, some what you would call is big sin. And you, you go to God. And here's the great thing about God. If you're new to faith, you got to understand this about God. Is when you confess your sins to God, he doesn't look at you and say, man, wow, that is big. Whoa, can't believe you did that. No, God looks at you and he says, man, that was wrong. But guess what? I forgive you. I give you a future. I give you hope. That thing doesn't have to define you anymore because I paid for it on the cross. And that's the amazing thing about our God is the scripture says that he is faithful and just to forgive. And man, I think the greatest life that a lot of people believe who are far from God is I can't go to church. You have no clue what I've done, Drew. 
You have no clue where I've been. You don't know how big my sin is. And you're right. I don't know how big your sin is. But I can tell you one thing. I know how big my God is. And he can overcome any sin, any regret that you have in your life. That's the truth. Because he gives you forgiveness and he gives you a future. And we have to just look to him and say, hey, this is who I am, God. I'm sorry for the sin, that my disobedience. Will you forgive me? Will you give me a future? Because here's the truth. You can't conquer what you don't confront. You can't conquer what you don't confront. In John chapter 4, the ending of this story where this woman is at the well, Jesus confronts her sin. And this is how it ends. It says, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And so Jesus confronts her sin. He gets in front of her sin. He says, hey, look, look at your life. Look at your choices. They're not leading where you want to go. And I think for some of us today, maybe the first step is to just look into a mirror and confront the choices that we're making where they're leading. I mean, I just realize, like, hey, if I continue in this path in my life, here's where it's going to take me. And are you okay with that? Are you okay with the man or the woman that you're becoming based on the choices you're choosing every single day? I think some of us, we just got to confront our sin and say, hey, I can't live like this anymore. Because if you don't confront it, nothing will change. You won't overcome it. You won't conquer it because you got to confront it first. But here's the deal about shame is here's where shame leads us. If we Live through life carrying the burden of our shame. If we don't give it up to God, here's where shame will take you. Shame will keep you stuck. It will keep you stuck in the past. It will keep you stuck in the present. And you'll miss out. This is the worst part. You'll miss out on the future that God has for you. You'll miss out on the blessings and the promises of God because you're so focused on past decisions and past regrets. This is what the Bible says, Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. So whoever keeps it hidden and keeps it silent, they won't prosper. They'll stay stuck. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Let me just give you the the Drew Karstner translation of this verse. This is not scripture. This is my voice, not God's voice. Just making that clear. But here's what this verse says to me. If I stay silent, if I conceal my sin and my shame, I'll remain where I am today. I'll stay stuck. But, man, don't you love the buts in scripture? I was a sinner, but God died for me. But the one who confesses it, the one who, who lets people know I'm struggling. The one who is, is, is okay saying this is me. They'll receive grace and mercy. And I'm telling you today, if you stay stuck, if you stay stuck carrying your shame, the shame of something you did or the shame that someone put upon you, whether you're innocent or guilty, if you hold on to that shame, you will stay stuck in your past and you will stay stuck in your present and you will miss out on all the goodness and all the greatness that God wants you to become. Are you good staying where you're at? Carrying this burden that you really don't want to carry but you don't know how to get rid of? 
I mean, I think of this series, as we wind down this series, Silent Killers, I wonder which one is that one for you? That one that you just fight constantly. Maybe this morning it's worry. Man, you can't go through a day without the anxiety of life consuming you. And as much as you try and you fight to overcome it, it's there and it's haunting you. Maybe for you it's darkness, it's depression. Man, you want hope in your life, but no matter what, this darkness just clouds around you and just pushes you down. Maybe it's your expectations. You expect God to do certain things, and if he doesn't do them, nah. Or maybe you expect your spouse to live up to a standard that no one can really live up to, or your family, or whoever it is, is your expectations of what you desire in life haunting you. Or maybe it's your shame. You don't even know what life would be like without carrying it. Because someone took advantage of you and you can't get past it. Because of a choice you made that was horrible. And I don't know how to get rid of this cloud that just walks with me through life. It's my shame. I don't even know what my life would look like without the shame, Drew. Because of who I am and the choices I've made. And man, as we end this series, I want you to understand two truths. The first one is we can't stay silent anymore. We've got to speak up. And I pray through this series that in your community group, you had an open forum of trusted people to just say, hey, I'm dealing with this. I worry. I'm, I'm dealing with depression. I've got expectations. I'm carrying shame. Will someone please help me? I pray through this series that you've got to see the body of Christ, the church, the people of God surround people and say, I'll fight with you, I'll walk with you, but they can't if you stay silent. And we can't, can't keep it concealed or hidden anymore. But the second truth is the more important truth. I hope we all walk away from this, knowing this truth that no matter the silent killer, whether it's one we covered or not, whether it's worry, expectations, depression, darkness, pride, you name it, whatever one you're dealing with, I want you to understand this truth. Because of Jesus, because of what he did on that cross, because of he stepped in our place and he hung and he died the death that we deserve because of our Savior, our Redeemer, our Forgiver, because of Jesus, I want you to know this. No matter that silent killer that you're fighting right now, because of Jesus, he gives you access. He gives you the keys to victory. This is all your fault. If only you had just said something, anything, things could be different. How can you live with yourself now? You let them down when they needed you the most. Don't you see the risks? 
this should be keeping you up at night. It's a big deal. You need to be thinking. Your life is falling apart. You should be worried about this. It should be like that for you. Why does God bless everyone but you? Your life never goes as planned. Things never go your way. It seems like God always lets you down. Nothing you do matters. You can't do anything right. You're a failure. Your life isn't worth anything. If you weren't around anymore, no one would even care.
it was okay to lie to myself and say everything was okay. Then it came to a point where it was not okay and I was not okay and I recognized that and I needed to get out and that, I, that this was gonna kill me if I didn't get out. I knew I had to change, I knew that what I was doing was wrong and that was hard, I had to swallow my pride. I had to admit that you screwed up, you messed up. I recognized I had a desperate need for God. It was just as simple as that. I recognized that my, my need was desperate for Jesus. And it was there when I started seeking God that I found fulfillment. It was just crazy that I'd been searching for so long and I wasn't getting it. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out like, you know, all these people seem happy or all of these things are supposed to make you happy and they're not. And it really was that it was recognizing that I had a desperate need for God and that he was willing to just kind of like take me. You know, he was willing to just be like, yeah, I've been waiting, you know, like, let's do this. I recognized that I needed God and He rescued me. He met me where I, where I was at and I haven't looked back since. <laughs>